Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, especially in a passage like this, we can fall under the temptation to judge it, to not want to hear from it, to not want to understand it. Please do something great through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us this morning to more deeply love you through this story of Tamar and Judah. I ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been nervous sitting up here today, feeling a little bit, uh, uh, just wondering if people notice what I notice, and it's the fact that my ankle is exposed. I could not find a black sock this morning. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. There are actually several commentators, several theologians, who believe that you should never preach this text in a church. And, and good commentaries, too, in, in terms of their material, their data. And so maybe we should heed that idea this morning. Maybe as a thought experiment, let's just go to the first pages of the New Testament and let's, you know, let's find a text that maybe pertains to, to maybe the first woman mentioned in the New Testament. So let's start looking at Matthew chapter 1. It starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. So obviously the apostle Matthew does not believe that we should be unaware of who Tamar is and Tamar's relationship with Judah in knowing the story of our Lord and Savior. This is the first woman ever remembered in the New Testament. It is not Eve. It is not Mary. It is not Elizabeth. It is this Canaanite woman named Tamar. And so even though there had been a 2,000-year gap between the apostle, between these events, and there's a 4,000-year gap today, we most certainly, in order to understand the salvation of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, why Jesus Christ needed to redeem the line of Judah, the family of Judah, we most certainly need to know Genesis chapter 38. And let's be candid also that the only reason God has to talk so openly about these subjects is because he's candid about the problem of sin. Sin that is not of his own design, it is of our design. The topics we deal with today in this passage are topics that we just need to turn on the news media, watch the majority of movies and films and television shows to find topics like these. And so if you're here, you know, the, the service after Easter going, why this text? It's because in this passage, we find two important distilling truths. First, it's a warning not to forsake, not to forget the morality that we are called to, 
the morality pattern after God's design, but also this passage is a great announcement that grace can be found when we've had hard failings. Now, our reading today began with a single verse from Genesis chapter 4. God created man and woman in his image. And the reality is, in the fourth chapter of the Bible, we see what an assault on the design of God's pattern order for marriage, pattern order for sexuality, pattern order for uh, the relationships of a man and a woman. And it happens within the city of Cain. Cain, of course, being the brother who murdered his brother. Uh, there are shades of Cain in the heart of Judah. And within connected to that city of Cain, where the city of Cain creates its own morality, they decide to begin what has been now a multi-thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years assault on God's design of the family. And the reality is, the inconvenient reality is God is most displeased, not that the cities that follow in the pattern of Cain might fall in line with this morality, but it's when this kind of morality infects those who are identifying or a part of his covenant family. It is, uh, we have names in scripture, important, big names, names like Abraham, names like Lot's daughters, names like Jacob, names like Judah, names like Samson, David, Solomon, and others who have succumbed in moments in their life to doing dishonor to the pattern design of God. And yet, there's good news in that because in that announces the fact that no one's story is too ugly for God to redeem. No one here today has a story that's too ugly for God to redeem. There is not a single person currently alive out in the world today that has a story too ugly for the grace of God. While many can get discouraged by the passage we're in today, if read rightly, it actually should be an encouragement. A story like this will show God's persistent, enduring love. No one is more stubborn and stubborn in his love and his affections that he puts upon his people than our good Lord himself. So this story of Judah and Tamar is shared to us by God because in exposing this story, our God will show us his unwavering love for those in whom his love falls upon. That's the good news. That's the great news. Now, when it comes to chapter 38, we find it written in a way where most certainly when Moses scribed this chapter, he sets it in between two other chapters that he wants us to draw connections to. So chapter 37, we were just in, we saw that Judah, which in the Greek is Judas, sold his brother for pieces of silver and deceived his father into believing that uh, Joseph had died through the sacrifice of a goat. 
elements and threads of that story will connect here. And then in the next chapter, we're going to see Joseph upholding sexual morality. And yet in his upholding sexual morality, the world will cast him off. He'll be thrown into prison. And so Moses, of course, this chapter is not a standalone. This chapter actually has arms that reach into the two that encapsulate it. And so at the start of chapter 38, we find ourselves soon after the betrayal of Judah's, um, uh, by Judah of his brother and his father, that Judah is going down to Canaan. Joseph, from the last chapter, he had gone down to Egypt. If Judah had been a good brother, an elder brother worth his salt, he would have been an elder brother who would have gone after the brother he betrayed. But no, the Bible isn't so invested in elevation. It wants us to know, instead of seeking his brother, instead of uh, repenting of his sin, he goes down further, not primarily in elevation. He wants to go live and rest in the midst of the Canaanites. If you remember from a few chapters ago, we compared the lives of Esau and Jacob after Jacob repents. And what was the difference? Jacob Esau found contentment in settling in the land of Canaan, whereas Jacob was cleaning his house of idols. He was trying to uh, grow his household in righteousness. And here is Judah. He is, in one sense, a, a son far worse than Esau at this moment. I mean, Esau squandered his inheritance. Judah sells his brother for money, deceives his father by telling him that Joseph is dead. Any parent knows that one of these things is worse than the others, than the other. And, and Judah's story is a unique story. Judah had been uniquely set aside, consecrated by his mother. Leah had always longed for the affections of Jacob. She was the bride that he did not want. And with the birth of her first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, every time she was like the little schoolgirl with the lily, saying, maybe Jacob will love me now. Maybe he loves me. And then Jacob would prove he loves her not. Maybe he will love me this He loves me not. Maybe he will love me this He loves me not. And with Judah and the birth of Judah, Leah flips the script. She no longer is primarily concerned about earning the love of her husband and earning his affections through what she provides for him. But rather, she blesses God, and she dedicates, in one sense, this child of Judah to God, saying that, God, you are my primary bridegroom, basically, uniquely setting him apart. And yet, as we come into this chapter, as we stated, as I stated, he is worse than Esau in this moment. He looks anything but set apart. Judah has actually left an utter devastation of sin behind him. He is like the, the napalm of this moment of the Bible, destroying this covenant family. And then he goes to the very people God told the covenant family never to settle with, never to get comfortable with. 
because God knew in, in such settling and such uh, comfortability with the worlds, the cities of Cain, that unfortunately they would fall victim to great sin and gross sin. And so in chapter 38, it shows us a Judah following that pattern of Esau, of settling in. And the ESV does a good job at the beginning there to make clear that basically Judah, when he goes into the land, he sees a woman he wants and he takes her and he uses her. There's no love. There's no affection in the story. It's all laid out very rote. He uses this woman as an object and this object that he uses provides him with three sons. And this is a gross wickedness. And as someone who, for a period of time, a season in pastoral ministry, my main focus was marital counseling, I can tell you it's a common sin. And we need to be careful of this common sin. And we live in a world that is constantly trying to show us video clips and and have scenes in movies and have pages on the internet that want to allow us to fall comfortable with objectifying individuals made in the image of God. And we need to be careful not to fall prey to the sin of Judah. Marriage is to be something of mutual love and complementary nature and enjoyment and a free-flowing of love. And Judah will have none of it here. And so as this object of Judah begins giving him sons, it's not that she was an object, of course, but he treated her like one. It seems like in rapid succession, three sons are birthed, and yet, this is actually the course over several years. Actually, the first part of this passage will take place about for take a place over two decades of time. The remainder of it, the majority of the text, will just be a few short months. But then in uh, verse six, his eldest son is finally ready to marry, and we see the name of the woman who is the first woman listed in the New Testament. Now. Through God's word, through Abraham and through Isaac, had already warned the family. And both those individuals were either Isaac was the grandfather of Judah, and Abraham was the great-grandfather, warned the family, the covenant family, not to marry a Canaanite. And yet, this is what's going to happen. And the amazing thing about God is God's going to redeem the family through the Canaanite woman. That shows the grace and mercy of God. And so they set up here. This marriage is arranged. And this Elden, eldest son, Ur, he ignores moral purity when it comes to his life and his wife. And his morality is God forsaken. And this is the first individual in scripture that is, it's clearly laid out. God reaches his hand down and actively ends his life because of his moral choices. 
If you don't believe God cares about morality, don't read Genesis chapter 38. And maybe you just think, maybe you're one of those people, oh, that God of the Old Testament, he's so mean, he does things like this. I love the God of the New Testament. And, and you construct in that, you know, this idea of the free-willing God who sort of goes with anything, goes with the flow. Don't read the book of Acts then, because God takes two people out for, a, for lying about a real estate deal. Don't read the book of Corinthians. There are other passages. You know, actually, what such a mindset comes from is the fact that we really don't believe the wages of sin are death. We don't want to believe that. And yet, God sees in this first son of Judah such evil and such wickedness, wickedness that extends from the hand of the city of Cain, that extends from the desire to rebel against God, that God ends his life. And so Judah then has Tamar, puts Tamar into relationship with his next son. And Onan, he's okay, much like his father was, of objectifying this woman, of using this woman for his own pleasure. And yet, the reality is, and verses 8 and 9 really give us a glimpse of the view of Canaanite culture, Canaanite society, he didn't want to lose or have to break up his inheritance. You can see from the text, he, he basically says, this child, if, if I conceive a child with Tamar, that basically this child will uh, be considered of my brother's household. And like father, like son, Judah, of course, did not care much about his brother. Onan doesn't care about the memory of his brother. And he decides to basically make sure that while he objectifies Tamar, he does not give her a child. To not have a child in this day was to have the idea of no inheritance. The good news of the New Testament, of course, is that there, the reality of womanhood is that it can be found also in spiritual motherhood. And we see that more clearly in the New Testament text. And so God once again reaches down and he removes another son of Judah from the land of the living. And so if you're one of those individuals who thinks, again, the God of the Old Testament mean, remember, this also takes place in the New Testament, this kind of act. God cares about our moral choices. Now in verse 11, Judah is down to one remaining son. And instead of having any kind of introspection, by the way, notice that he has no remorse. Moses does not paint Judah as having remorse for losing his two sons. And actually, the best way you know that he doesn't have much remorse for losing his first two sons is the fact that he still allows his father to think his son Joseph is dead. A repentant Judah at this point would, if a Judah really understood and had compassion, as we are called to have compassion, he would have had run to back to the father's household, run back to uh, Jacob and shared the good news that Joseph was not dead. He does not do that, but he believes that, you know, Tamar must just be this black widow kind of individual. 
this threat to the family. And so he hypocritically tells Tamar, he lies to Tamar, basically saying, you can marry my final son, my last son, but he never intends to follow through. We love scapegoats. We love to blame others for moral failings or hard situations and difficulties. And Judah is illustrating this. And so Judah actually sends his daughter-in-law away. That would have been a great insult to her. Sends her back to her original father's house. And basically, he just wants her to rot there. Because a woman twice married, engaged, has no hope and no future in a Canaanite society. He wants to do away with her. And so Tamar, as she's been left to just for dead, she comes up with a plan. And when we read this in the scriptures, if you have read this chapter before, there's one thing that we often skip over far too casually that this text actually reveals. The fact that she comes up with this plan shows that she was well aware of the piggish kind of man that Judah was. Nothing about her plan would come to pass if Judah was a righteous, morally cognizant man. This type of trap that is set forth is because at this moment, Judah is in gross wickedness, gross sin, and she knows it. Think about what kind of ministry or what kind of, she, maybe she saw that, that relationship between Judah and his wife, who has since died at this point in the narrative, and she realizes this is a man who objectifies women. This is a man who just takes whatever he wants for himself. And so she concocts a plan where she will bump into him, veiling her face, which was the practice of cult temple harlots. And she will see if that way she can get Judah to honor the promise of giving her a seat, giving her hope, giving her a future. She actually is more concerned with the covenant line and covenant family of God than Judah is. And so Judah, okay, of course, falls right into the trap because he is actually as bad as Tamar sets this up to, to, to be. And then it's just a negotiation. And Judah, yet again, offers a goat as a sacrifice for what he desires to take. And she accepts the offer, knowing that he didn't have a goat on him. And so she then takes three items from him. The signet ring, uh, his cord, and his staff. This is sort of like, these are the items that in our modern day you would go to the notary with. They identify who you are. And Judah in this moment is going to trade his identity in order for, to receive a temporary pleasure. And so Tamar asks for this pledge. 
she asks for his identity documents, basically, and he gives them willingly. And then, after the deed is done, he returns back to his flock, and Judah tells his friend, he doesn't even go himself, to go find that cultist, cult prostitute and pay her her goat and get back his identity. By the way, with friends like this, who needs enemies? What do your friends delight in? Might say something. Careful. And the friend, of course, can't find the cult prostitute because she wasn't a cult prostitute. She had created this scheme. And so he comes back to Judah, tells him that he can't find the cult prostitute. And he basically says, well, let her keep those, keep that ident- those identifying documents because I don't want to go around town asking for the cult prostitute that I have to repay. Because that would be embarrassing. He doesn't care that God already knows this. He just doesn't want the local town to know this. And so Judas, verse 23, is totally ignorant of the irony, saying he doesn't want to be laughed at. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. And I know we all hate hypocrisy, but I just want you to imagine for a second, if we hate hypocrisy so, so much, what does God think of it? And then three months later, Judah gets word that Tamar is pregnant, having no idea of how she's pregnant. Tamar, who is technically at this time still engaged to Judah's youngest son. And so that means that Judah gets to rule on this matter. He gets to be the final arbiter of whether what happens to the woman. You think of even the story of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Joseph had a, a huge part in extending grace to Mary. But Judah has the right to decide her fate according to Canaanite culture. And without delay, the Hebrew makes it clear it's without delay. He says, let's bring her out and let's burn her. Here is Judah, a cruel hypocrite, immediately rushing to and demanding a fiery penalty of death for an action he ultimately committed. We Christians can occasionally convince ourselves, oh, God's law is too hard to follow. I, I promise you, all of us are guilty of having such a judgmental spirit of times We've convicted ourselves through our own standards and our own words. Well, how many sins we love to judge in others, but we fail to see in ourselves. That's what Judah is doing at this moment. And Tamar is being brought out to be burned. And yet she has an ace in her sleeve. She has the three identifying items. And Moses at this time wants us to to reach into chapter 37, where Judah had been a part of deceiving Jacob by handing him the clothing, the blood-soaked clothing, and said, examine these things and come to your own conclusions. Here, Tamar takes these three items, hands them basically to Judah, and says, examine these things, come to your own conclusions. And finally, Finally, the scales fall from Judah's eyes, and he repents, and he realizes that he is the guilty. He is the one whom deserves to be burned. 
and he pronounces her free. He actually pronounces her righteousness and the fact that her actions were actually godly actions that would help preserve the promise that she was given. So Tamar, a Canaanite woman whom the members of the covenant family were never originally called to be with, she finds her way into the family of God. She finds herself engrafted into the family of Israel. And she is ultimately proven to be the most noble of Judah's household. God had promised Judah's great-grandfather Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation, and through you all the families of the world will be blessed. And yet Judah's, Judah and his family, at this point, have been nothing short of a blight upon society. And yet God redeems it. God restores it in ways unimaginable. And let's say you've checked out. You just you found that this passage is just too difficult to consider. Can I get you back for just a moment? We live in a world of like extreme filtering of views that are inconvenient to have. You know, YouTube removes sermons now that say, there's only two genders, a man and a woman. I mean, as if that's controversial. Can you just think with me for a moment about Genesis chapter 38? Why would the people of Israel, why would Moses want to write down and record this story? If this is a book of mythology, if this is just a bunch of fables that have got out of control, why would you write a story like this? Why would the New Testament writers create this woman as the first woman ever named? Why? If it wasn't true. I'm sick and tired of people treating this book as if it's a collection of fables. You would never write it this way if it was fable. You would write that, uh, a story where every Israelite would look like the hero and every Canaanite look like the bad guy. We like stories like Star Wars, the first ones, not the later ones. They stink. In comparison, they're still okay. You know, the, the clear dividing lines of hostility. We don't like this messiness, this intermixed kind of nature that a Canaanite woman is going to be the seed by which the covenant family is preserved that leads to the line of Christ? If you are pretending still that this book is a collection of fables, you're not reading it with proper perspective. You would never write it in such a way. You would never write Genesis 38 unless it was true. And because it's true, and because this book writes chapters like this. We can trust this book. We can trust this record. And, and the overwhelming conclusion it leads to is that our God is incredible. He should have done away with us. He should have done away with this family. And yet he perseveres. And the greatest blessing ever given to Judah, the, the greatest blessing ever given to Tamar, isn't their sons? Their two sons, Perez, the twins, 
the greatest blessing is that from that line, from that line would come the Son of Sons and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who would bless all the nations and bless every household. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the God who would pay, who would be the actual sacrificial offering, not a goat. He was the actual sacrificial offering for Judah's sins. God takes people who have been blinded by sin, consumed with worldly lusts, and he's willing to save them and he's willing to redeem them, granting them eyes to see. We see that here in our passage with Judah. To give them a greater, more everlasting gift before them, where redemption and joy and 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 beauty is eternal. And we're too willing to trade it away for temporal, for finite things. And this story serves as a cautionary tale that, that God cares about our morality and God has offered us far better redemption than the kinds that we seek. You have eyes to see the gift of heavenly grace this morning. You have eyes to see the unrelenting grace of God that will, that will just endure and endure and endure for our sake. Found in the bloodlines of Tamar and Judah. Or have the scales not yet fallen from your eyes? Come and examine. Come and examine the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the, the Lord our God in whom you can find no fault, but rather where sinners can find grace and mercy. For Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one and only son whom had the power to save such a covenant family like ours. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we confess our sorrow that stories like these are, in one sense, written in Scripture because it shows the sinfulness of our own depraved hearts. And yet we also confess your gracious mercy and your loving nature in that you would not forsake us, you would not cast us out, but you continue to pursue us. And so help that message change us. Help this reminder cause us to evaluate our own lives and consider and examine the worthy things of God. Amen.